Um, we had talked about, well, no. I'll let, I forgot. I forgot even what we were doing. <laughs> it was your idea, talking. Patrick. I should have just stopped talking. All right, let me, I'm taking it one more time. All right. You're listening to The John Chi Show, hosted by three Korean-American adoptees diving headfirst into what it means to be adopted, Korean, American, and more. And now, here's your hosts, Nathan, Patrick, and KJ. Welcome back to The John Chi Show. I am one of your hosts present as Nathan Nowak along with KJ, but unfortunately, we are missing our third trio musketeer, Patrick Armstrong. third trio musketeer (laughs) is musketeering away from us at the moment. Yes, but... So we're uh, flying extra solo. Extra solo for the John Chi Show. However, it is not a solo John Chi Show. It was a guest show, (laughs) which Patrick was unavailable for as well, but he came for the end, and that's, you know all we can ask that's all we can ask for right yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) but he also edited this so hey you know i shouldn't give him too much credit yeah he he did his part (laughs) he just wasn't present for it he's like i'm just trying to live that remote life that's okay we we all have lives right technically kj's got his life i've got my life we we have busy schedules uh but we make time for for the john chi show so thank you guys for listening um yes how, how you been you're you seem busy as well, though. Uh, so I just got a new job that I started yesterday. Nice. Um, so at, when you're hearing this, if you're hearing it when this released, I started Monday. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a lot. Plus a new house. Plus just trying to live my life. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm real tired. And, okay, here's the deal. The, the other problem with everything is my previous primary place of work i'm still kind of working with them uh they're all based in california so it's Mm. two hours behind me Mm. great love that totally works with my schedule but now since i'm working locally i have to like get up and be at a place it's a regular old nine to five and i there's something about waking up in the hours of six and seven that's like impossible for me it's been impossible for me ever since high school so today, Tuesday, I decided to wake up at 5.30 in the morning. Oof. So now I'm just like extra tired because oh, yeah. I'm like, I didn't sleep well the night before. I didn't sleep. I haven't slept well for a number of nights. And my brain is like extra overloaded with new information. And mm-hmm. yeah. So that's KJ complains about his life. How are you doing, Nathan? Uh, hey, wait till you have kids. Then that, <laughs> that, that 6.30, 7 o'clock rolls around like it's like... Like you can't sleep past it, even if there aren't kids around. So you just become very accustomed to waking up early. And I was never an early bird person to wake up early. I hated waking up early. And now I cannot sleep past 7.30 at the latest, uh, even when I'm like on vacation by myself or or something like that. Uh, so when was the last time you were on vacation with yourself? <laughs> uh, two weeks ago. Well, I guess, yeah, two, three weeks ago, I had to go to L.A. for that one day. Uh, oh, gotcha. And so, yeah, I woke up that morning without, uh, I guess, a, a schedule other than yeah. getting breakfast. So, okay. But it's rare. And, and it's actually funny because it's, I don't know, you just forget that you're alone sometimes and you almost like, you almost have like phantom 
babies crying in the background sometimes. You just wake up and you swear you hear something and it's it's not there. But Yikes. But that's my life. Um That's real fun. <laughs> so. We need Patrick. This feels weird. Not that <laughs> not that talking with you is weird. I just like I really feel like a, a big part of us is missing. Where's the third yeah, where's yeah. the third uh um person to chime in on the story? Yeah, like, Patrick's like oh, I've you, never done you either of those. Here. You get out of here, geese. <laughs> Don't you dare come into my yard. <laughs> we should just sit here and do our best Patrick impersonations. <laughs> 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 the only okay so the only thing that i could really do for a patrick impersonation is uh i <laughs> so when i'm editing sometimes when he rolls in like it's his you know quote his term to, time to talk i was like well and i feel like i feel like the thing is about what you're saying is and and i totally agree but i feel like what i would see what i think about the situation is but he just like has like a long lead up to that you mm-hmm. know that's my like my one take on what patrick does or he'll just yell yell really like, like that <laughs> so yeah those are my impersonations of patrick do you have mm-hmm. anything oh gosh i was trying to think of something it's just tr- the only thing i can think of is the way he eats at the end of the thing sometimes <laughs> he just shoves the entire snack in his oh, mouth yeah and i can't really imitate that right now because like, <laughs> like, you don't have yeah food. i'm feeling that yeah yeah <laughs> good oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah <laughs> but <laughs> that's about, what a bro that's about we it we love you patrick yeah um but i don't know we had a great interview and even though uh you know patrick wasn't there it i i really enjoyed um talking to daniel and uh just hearing everything even though we had there was some audio issues but i think i think every you probably won't even notice people so why am i even saying that or you um, will notice, like you notice <laughs> that my audio sounds different because I'm using AirPods like a chump. <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah, no, it was a, a great interview. He's um, listened to the show before because somebody he knows was on the show, and I think uh, that's kind of how he found us. Um, yeah, we got connected to Daniel through Shalice Gisaki by way of Adoption mm-hmm. Mosaic. That's that point of connection, I think. Yeah. So shout out to Shalice. Shout out to Daniel. Thanks for being so incredible with your story and your time and working with us through all the audio technical difficulties, just a, a function of remote podcasting, but it made it work and we're really, really yeah. excited for you to hear the story. Definitely. So let's roll in with the clip as soon as I can find it. Here we go. All right. Great. Take us there. Okay, welcome back to the John Chi Show. This is the interview portion, and today we have a very special guest. His name is Daniel Gu. Daniel, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Um, thanks for uh, introducing me, and you got the name right and everything. I appreciate it. That's awesome. Uh, man, we are are so excited to, to have you, and it's always exciting to... Um, just to have other voices on the show. And personally, I know that like we try not to be any negative, like we, whatever, try not like we, we wrestle in these intersectionalities and we try not to be like ageist or uh, sexist or, you know, whatever, all those things. But I got to say, this is no shade to any of our previous guests. It's nice to have another dude on. I feel like it's been a while since we've had another dude on and not, not like, I know that the John T show naturally over indexes for male adoptees, but uh, I don't know. I just, it's a, I'm, I'm excited. You know, I'm reading over your, um, your story and what you filled out and I'm excited to talk to you about it. So why don't you kick us off and tell us 
your adoption story in as little or as much detail as you want. Awesome. Thank you. And yes, and I agree. And that, uh, that gender representation spread was, I think, something that drew me to your show, honestly. And again, especially finding other male identifying Korean adoptees who like are open to talk about it too. And so like join the conversation, um, as far as numbers are concerned and, you know, sort of gender culture, I think is something I pay attention to a lot. Um, and yeah, and that's part of my story. Uh, I was born in Busan in 1987. Um, I was about four months. I think I hopped from Busan to Seoul somewhere in, in that time. And then I was adopted by white Catholic folks uh, in the Chicago suburbs, um, Oak Park, Illinois, for any of my suburban listeners. There was, a, there was a healthy network of Korean adoptees out there. I went to something called Camp Pride Korea, um, you know, similar to like the other heritage camps. But it was, you know, entirely organized by the adoptive families. So most of it was run by the white parents. And they would maybe bring in some Korean American oh. guests. Um, it was interesting. It was held at a Korean church, so the, like there were like some ajumas of the church who would make us lunch um, for one of the days of the week that the camp lasted. So that was nice, and just a really interesting way of learning Korean culture from a very like American guide book. To knowing how to be Korean. Yeah, interesting. Um, was it also like, was there Christianity involved in there too? Or was it mostly like they tried to keep it like just Korea tradition, culture, et cetera? Less religion, more just the, the setting that I think wanted to make the space available. Mm. Um, although in terms of my adoption, Christianity was definitely part of it. In fact, one story I often tell is I went to a Lutheran grade school uh, for kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, my dad was Catholic, and he went and had a whole history in seminary. So I grew up in very religious context, but also different denominations of it. And so I had very mixed understandings of Christianity in its entirety. And also, I think up to about third grade, I interchangeably told, I interchangeably believe that being adopted and being baptized were the same thing because there's the narrative of like, you're saved from darkness, you're welcomed into the house, you know, so many months later. And yeah, mm -hmm. that was, that was something that kind of, I, I reflect back on and like, yeah, I could totally see that the baptism slash naturalization slash you know just the the background behind most adoptive families i mean because i went to church too so um, wow way to brag bro that's just <laughs> that's just what they did that was it seemed like that was the the norm i felt mm -hmm. but. yeah and um uh y'all have heard of um what's his name joel kim booster mm -hmm. the comedian he yeah, more recently than, than later, actually. <laughs> yeah. He started coming onto the scene just about the same time that I had the same narrative in my own mind where it's like, I knew I was gay before I knew I was Asian because that was the neighborhood I grew up in. And like, as far as being a teenager in a predominantly white high school, 
it, I could only handle one struggle at a time. And the, the sort of color blindness that I kind of was in, in, encrusted in, uh, you know, being Asian was more of just like a side joke than anything. Mm. Do you feel that was like, a, um, I guess a little bit of a catalyst as well, that when you came out, uh, that you also wanted to look for other things like your identity as a Korean adoptee? It almost became more of an obstacle, honestly. Oh. It became one other thing to kind of have to overcome and figure out, like, as a factor of fitting in. I've done a lot of reflection of, like, what I could see and what capacity I had for knowing that I was different from everyone and deciding on how much of that to act on um, and to assimilate. And knowing that, like, I wasn't like other Asians, for better or for worse. I went to undergrad at the University of Iowa, even, like, deeper in the Midwest. And the only other Asian folks there were international students. And so there was also like, this contention, because I worked in the dorms, and so a lot of them would come from their international programs to live in the dorms and think that I was their welcome committee, and I couldn't speak anything to them. And so, yeah, and it wasn't really until I moved out to Portland in 2010 which, you know, I'm sure anyone who knows and has heard rumors of Portland culture, it has sort of a front piece of being very uh, liberal, crunchy, grassy, uh, weird city, and also really I mean, white. we've all seen Portlandia. We get it. <laughs> yeah. The, the whiteness <laughs> is a real yes. thing, and it took me a long time to, like, pull that veil back as well. And then it becomes this other battle of how do I hold space for myself and identify as a person of color, as an Asian American, as an adoptee. Like it, 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 the coming out process, you know, it doesn't stop with coming out of the closet as a, as a homosexual. It, it then <laughs> what became like just, just accepting that I was Asian and then being a queer Asian and then yeah. being Korean among the other narratives, and then realizing that, like, oh, mm -hmm. you know, all of these rooms I'm sitting in and I'm supporting the Asian American community are folks talking about their parents being immigrants and growing up in restaurants and having their grandmothers yell at them in Chinese and whatnot. I'm like, that's not really my story. But I also don't feel like taking up space here because so much of my culture acculturation has made me feel more white than anything yeah so. that yeah 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 yeah. okay i i totally hear that that i think that's that's something that i'm i'm finding in my own journey of thinking through like here i am i've got these identities i feel like i've come out and quote unquote come out successfully uh whatever that means um <laughs> i guess i guess coming out without burning Bravo. a bunch of bridges um <laughs> and and also still being true to myself right like that's like that's really the dream is to like to be your full self and not also burn bridges whether you're by by choice by choice or by force whatever um but yeah, I get, I, I totally get what you mean where you're like, I want to be a part of this broader group now that I feel like I've found some people who are in most, in more ways than not my people. Uh, but I don't want to take up that space. And I can't, I can't even begin to imagine that how tough it would be to, 
to to be aware of your Asianness and be in those spaces, to be aware of your queerness and and be in those spaces, finding the intersectionalities, and then like you said, like you know, being um, greeted at the University of Iowa with international students, and then you have to deal with like non-American sensibilities around the LGBTQ plus community and like how they deal with that. But then also you've got like your adoption thing, which I don't think it sounds like you weren't really wrestling with at the time. So like you probably felt something in your heart, but you were like, I don't know what it's probably just because I'm gay and they don't like gay people or maybe they're, I don't know, you know, like, like you probably would have just attributed to like loss in translation. Right. So I'm curious, what was that? What was the process when um, adoption for you came to the forefront? Because it, like, it sounds if I if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like you had your gay identity and then Asian identity slash BIPOC identity and then adoption. Is that an accurate exactly. kind of like path? Yeah, yeah, and realizing that it was its own thing, and really for myself, you know, um, there's a great platform organization in Portland called APANO, the Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon. And so that became kind of like the catch-all for um, kind of a demographic of younger Asian American kind of spanning millennial generations of educated young Asian people in Portland trying to like do something for the community, et cetera. And um, I don't want to badmouth them, um, but the community, you know, it, the one big conversation at Apano is um, to what degree we're sustaining this kind of model minority myth by concerning ourselves and putting so much energy into being politically correct, you know, and recognizing all the aspects of social justice, you know, in tandem with both external and internal community issues like. East Asians having more privilege than South Asians and cult, like its own versions of colorism um, and issues that can be peeled into so many layers and they're so complicated that are so differently relevant now than they were five years ago that it's like none of us can keep up with it and it's constantly evolving. And, you know, in 2020, so much kind of erupted in so many different ways with anti-Asian hate and uh, racial justice um, and then cancel culture, I think became a huge movement of its own that just, for me, got really overwhelming in terms of who was more right and who got canceled. I don't know. It was... It was a lot. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's it's a, it's unfortunate. I mean, I get the reason historically why Asian American is created uh, as a means of like garnering um, Im- impetus and momentum behind a social movement. But yeah, like when you're including a whole dang continent. There's bound to be <laughs> some things. I mean, and you see it in the African American community um, and like the Caribbean. American community, I guess, like, you know, generally you think about all those kinds of things, like, yeah, that's, ah, that's so tough. So I'm curious, um, you said in your form that you didn't come out of the fog until about two or three years ago. What was the impetus for that? And what's kind of been the fallout of that since then? Fallout. Yeah. Coming so, out of the fog is not a bad thing. It's just a hard thing. <laughs> oh no. Well, and like I said too, I, um, dove into that, uh, because of Ostrid. 
um, who I got connected to also, and who I eventually then met Shalise through, who I know you had on recently. Mm-hmm. And so, as far as like the Pacific Northwest region, um, this figure, Astrid Castro, has been a fundamental catalyst for open conversations about adoption, centering the adoptee, centering transracial, transnational adoptees, and you know having those conversations um, about what that means and what that looks like. And I wish you know she was around to talk to my parents about that. Um, and yeah, it came from one thing to another in terms of doing some panel presentations at a panel on the history of Korean adoption and that like we were a demographic too. Um, and then mm. that was in 2019. And then I found Ostrid through that, joined some of the adoption mosaic panels. And then when the pandemic hit and we had to go into isolation, sorry, when the pandemic hit and we had to go into isolation, um, I joined a program that Ashton was doing specifically having conversations with the white parents of transracially adopted kids. And that took off right the same week that, um, who was, there was that family, that YouTube family that rehoused their kid. Did you hear that story? Yeah. Send their kid back. Um, yeah. Yeah. They, they, they returned their adopted son. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. That is awful. I don't know if I heard about that or if I didn't know, but I don't know, whatever. Yeah, that sucks. Okay. Yeah. And then that was the same week as George Floyd's murder. So, um, mm-hmm. so it was really valuable to have that space. And, the, you know, Coming out of the fog, it's a great metaphor, it's a great term because you're never quite sure when it starts. And you're just kind of in it. And you realize like, yeah. oh, things have been foggy for this long. And then this is the fog. <laughs> so that's what the Golden Gate Bridge looks like. Yeah, huh. exactly. And there's different degrees of fog, right? It's like a little haze and then it gets a little thicker and then it gets really thick where you can't see your hand and then it goes maybe back. Yeah. yeah. And it's like everything too, where it's just like, has all of my life struggles been because I'm adopted, because I'm Asian, mm-hmm. because I'm queer? You know, and, and you avoid it a lot, I think, because it's, you know, when you do start to come out of the fog and look at it for what it is, you know, one conversation is like, everybody struggles with feeling like they belong or that they don't belong or look searching for belonging in their lives. And then I think once you join this conversation of being adopted, you have this giant flashing red arrow to this could be the sole thing that is your life story from the get-go. I like to swim in a big pool of existentialism. That the pool of existentialism is a whole other podcast that I could probably start because I started. Well, I also recently started listening to a philosophy podcast, and so now I'm thinking about like what the what the role of dialectic tension is in, especially in adoptees' life. And uh, so that's that's a whole thing. We'll probably talk about that at at another point because it's really really like brainy and out there, and I'm not even sure that I'm qualified to speak on it, even pretending like I know what I'm talking about. So yeah, that's a lot, man. Um, okay. So I'm also curious, 
because yeah <laughs> i'm curious um i'm not sure that we have broached this subject because to be frank no one's really written it in their form um and if 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 you don't want to talk about it, that's totally fine too. But you wrote that you uh, cut ties with your family um, in yeah. June of 2020, and your there are yeah. yeah 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 sorry your yeah. adoptive family and there are a lot there's a lot of identities that you hold in your body that like could be a reason for that uh, in and of themselves and that are often represented. But the fact you hold all of them in your body and find still found the need to do that. Uh, that's tough. And it's, I mean, it's two years on, but there's obviously still a lot of grief and pain and transition that, that happens then. Um, but I'm wondering if you would just kind of tell us at least a little bit of that story, because I'm sure that, that that is, um, a fairly common and unfortunate reality, especially as adoptees, uh, especially as a part of the queer community, um, for whatever reason, often with religious families, um, so yeah, if you would wouldn't mind kind of sharing that process and helping me understand because that's not a thing that I've had to go through, but um, want to to gain that empathy and mm -hmm. that um, yeah that compassion to grow I guess in that compassion for that. You know, recognizing that there's an archetype of like the ungrateful or the angry adoptee um, was actually something that I identified with but also in its own strange way kind of empowered me because it gave me more reason that this is a, a, a feeling beyond just my specific situation and recognizing that the family I grew up in was pretty toxic. Um, there was, a, there's a long history of addiction in both of my parents, my adoptive parents' histories. Um, and granted, they um, they went sober before starting a family together. Um, they had my older brother um, biologically, and he was born with complications. And so my mom couldn't have any more biological children after that. And the complications he was born with then later um, kind of evolved into some learning and behavior uh, difficulties that only kind of fueled more of the issues around their sober addiction, which was just a lot of anger management problems. And so, you know, painting a very sort of storybook picture of it, they remarkably resembled the Dursleys from Harry Potter. <laughs> and that storyline felt Were you the very kid in the familiar. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I identified strongly. I identified strongly. They oh, they coddled my brother, and he also had some weight issues, and like it, it, there were so many other things that factored into my upbringing that I am grateful and I love my parents and my family for, undoubtedly, um, and sometimes the expression of love from one person can be toxic to another person, and especially in codependent relationships where you know uh history of addiction kind of plays that role there's like some unfortunate uh barriers that just can't be breached um and sometimes people just have to do what it takes to protect themselves and so that 
became kind of a decision on my part, um, especially after I moved out to the West Coast and there really wasn't much reason to maintain our relationship. And then realizing that my whole experience in the family felt very much like um, Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, I kind of felt like I was the trophy child, um, kind of like the proof that like they could get it together and have a house with two kids and pick a fence and be a happy family outside the house. But indoors, it wasn't very familial. Yeah. That's I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. And, and again, uh, yeah, there's, I, I, I have love for them as people and recognizing all that they went through both before, during, and after adopting me into the family. And I'm grateful for the resources that was provided for me, the privileges that were provided for me, um, the medical care, you know, for certain things that um, I was born with that factored into my adoption. You know, I had, um, my fingers were conjoined with this. So you know, I had a number of uh, orthopedic surgeries and um, you know, that all played into kind of the opportunity to be adopted and to be who I am today. And, um, you know, so along with queerness and race, and so many other things like I've had um, some journeys into understanding addiction and recovery and programs like um, Al-Anon, which are for the partners or family of addicts, understanding that even if you know, you're sober, um, there's still underlying issues of addiction that express themselves that if they're not addressed and resolved can affect the other people in your life. And then taking the time to find my place in that relationship and recognize my responsibility to myself um, came with that kind of decision. And yeah, I struggle a lot through it, but also it felt like the right thing to do. And it, it was the first time that I actually felt empowered enough to have, to hold that decision for myself. And I think it's it's especially tough, like when you're listed as like a special needs adoption, right? Because like I also had a bunch of surgeries to do with my hand, and and you know, so there's like this whole extra layer, I think, or this extra weight of like feeling the need to be grateful. And I think that also messes with your adoption story a little bit. Like, I don't know about for you, for me, I'm like, oh, well, maybe my birth parents would have kept me, but they couldn't, like, they didn't have the money to get me the surgeries, right? And like, if I was quote unquote normal, exactly. then, you know, I would have been kept. And so that adds like a layer of grief and and all those kinds of things, right? That's, yeah, that. And so then you think about like, with the weight of being a quote special needs adoption and then also feeling angry justifiably so uh because of all of the trauma and all of your <laughs> intersectional identities and like just the history of like especially with with you with your family situation like it's probably right and justified that you were angry you had a lot of things to be angry about and you had a, like a lot of things that like 
were properly like a righteous rage right within you but then you're like but also there's this archetype of like the angry adoptee which for you you found really empowering you're like oh other people have done it i'm not crazy (laughs) but um yeah that oh man that's so much to wrestle with and then you get into um protests and the blm movement and all that stuff and you've written about now taking a break and uh i think you put in your form recovering social justice warrior and figuring out those boundaries so it sounds like you've you've had a little bit of practice really kind of establishing those boundaries but then also having to put them in a new context and thinking through that and and all that and i know that i mean this show really was born out of um at least for patrick and i George Floyd's murder plus COVID plus all of that stuff. And so there, there is like really like a, a social justice bent to the show just because that's where our coming out of the fog story starts. Um, so I'm curious for you, oh. what's, what's been that process for finding a boundary and, and engaging with these things that you care about in a way that helps you do it for the long haul and not just like, I'm super into it. Now I'm burned out. And now I feel really bad about myself. And then like you get re-energized. I'm super into it. Now I'm burned out, you know, without falling into that cycle. I am very familiar with that cycle. I think the more (laughs) practice I get, the more I can kind of taper that cycle. Um, Just again, practicing that self-awareness. And I, I live for these conversations. Mm. I live to be in affinity spaces and to be sharing these experiences and perspectives, but I don't depend on it. And I think recognizing Mm -hmm. the boundaries around things that I was passionate about, I always get carried away with. And again, things are cyclical. And for me, the search for my identity and the way in which I struggled with juggling all of these different identities and wearing all of these different hats was to put on that hat, put on the whole outfit that went with the hat, strut the runway, do a whole fashion show just all around that one hat and run backstage, put on another hat, put on another outfit, run around and strut this stuff. And so today I'm all about Asian causes and Asian identity and Tomorrow I'll be all about LGBTQ and this week I'm, you know, running a marathon for disability and it's, it's dangerous because it thrives on your trauma and you don't maybe realize Mm -hmm. that your trauma is what's behind your motivation to be a good person and to do good things and to engage yourself. But also because of the trauma, there's no bottom to that well. Huh. And especially if you've like had some kind of uh, tangential experience with addiction, you know, even like codependency is its own form of addiction with relationships and with like validation and uh, self-affirmation, self-esteem, all that stuff. I fell into a lot of those category so i know you've done some work with uh adoption mosaic but you said you also in your form you did some uh you started a uh, organization also in portland called yande can you tell us a little bit about that 
Yeah. Um, I think the time that I applied, I think Yunday was born from the same motivation that you all started the Janshi show. And several of the other organizers were part of that uh, Korean adoptee panel series that I helped organize for Apano back in 2019. And we had found community and family together um, as Korean adoptees and realizing like the more and more time we spent together in conversations we had that this was not just its own kind of identity, but also just the greater history of it and how it's tied into so many relevant conversations that came up in 2020. And so we saw ourselves as Korean adoptees as kind of straddling this interesting threshold between race and whiteness and growing up in white families, but then being seen as Asian people, having that kind of code switch um, empowered us to use the narrative of being a Korean and an international adoptee as a way of sort of code switching and cross translating these volatile conversations between white communities and black communities and race as a construct and as a target and um, in the midst of the anti-Asian hate from COVID. And then when, you know, Portland started to kind of burn, if you will, when Portland was burning, uh, we came together and found a lot of solidarity in the position of Korean adoptees and our relationship with whiteness and with Asian identities in the midst of the Asian hate sentiment, um, but also like this wall that seemed to exist between white people and people of color on topics of racism and violence. And we wanted to find a way that we could utilize Asian identity as an example of being people of color while the rest of whiteness didn't necessarily see us that way and holding that mirror up as a means of like advocating for the experiences of other people of color while not speaking for them. So, you know, it, it, was, it was just our way of trying to like embrace being the identity of being Korean adoptees in the midst of this Black Lives Matter movement without trying to appropriate anything other than our own narrative for the sake of supporting these issues of like racial violence. While knowing that we were, we also spoke the language, we spoke the code, we switched to codes to talk to our white parents and we're in so much proximity to white power, for lack of a better term, um, that we felt a particular angle to access that. Yeah. And it's that still going today. Yeah. It's still going today. I believe so. Um, I dipped um, the end of 2020 going into 2021. They're like, Yande also um, took different angles um, towards looking at uh, international adoption and abolition. And there was strong sentiments over kind of what directions 
we wanted to use that platform for. And so I agree with a lot of those sentiments, but um, my involvement was more in the right. local right. community building aspect of it. And I learned all about like catch and goal and con and realizing that like there's so many more conversations and groups happening that it's just like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Surprising. Out, it, 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 you find one and then you find two and three and five. And then and you're yeah. like, how did I not know about any of them until just now? And apparently there's like thousands of them. And maybe not thousands, maybe that's ridiculous, but you know, there's millions of them. And I'm like, why, what, why did I start around with that? You know what? Yeah. That's a whole, that's a whole thing. I get yeah. That mm -hmm. Yeah. That bizarre shared experience we all have of like isolation and then massive connection. Yeah. Yeah. You made a comment about the CADs or the people coming out of the fog born from the pandemic and born from kind of the BLM movements, uh, and stuff like that. I, I I really truly believe that did happen because, like you said, we a lot of people were at home. We were in, uh, you know, um, you know, lockdown, and the internet became our friends. And we looked through pages and pages of things to find something. And I think a lot of people did find community from that and and, and open their eyes to adoption issues and their own adoption related topics or trauma and things that they wanted to discover um, and just went down that rabbit hole from there. So uh, how um, have you done, what have you done, I guess, um, to further going down other rabbit holes since uh, leaving Yande and becoming an advocate? Or are you more concentrated on your ceramic work that you've been doing, which is looks amazing, by the way? Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I think part of that entry into that term recovering SJW, recovering social justice warriors, um, was part of that. And I think I peaked in 2020, by the end of 2020, um, with the work of Yande, and in the same conversation as I was having before, it was also the most carried away and the most outside of myself and the most, um, for lack of a better term, like addicted I was to something that was so bigger and so much more beyond myself that Going into 2021, I took myself into my own version of uh, isolation, for better or for worse, and kind of treated it like a recovery from all the trauma of 2020, but using a lot of the language of addiction recovery, um, kind of going sober from social justice. and you know, really trying to find my center and find my, be my best self and find out what my own success looks like. Uh, realizing that like part of this bigger conversation of racial justice and liberation was really just all for that purpose of just like, we deserve to live our best lives independent of what other people have to say or do or act or pay to be. So fortunately, I had access to a ceramic studio, and I just kind of hunkered down and spent some time with myself and some clay, and made a bunch of pots, made a bunch of cups, um, and you know took kind of my 
my craft uh, on the road in the summer, did some farmer's market circuits, and that was enough for me. And learning that word enough. Mm. That's the trick, man. Yeah. That is 1 million percent the trick. And mm-hmm. we talk, I mean, you've been so generous with your story um, f- from filling out the form to what you've shared with us on the show. And it's, I mean, it's a lot. All of our lives are a lot. Uh, yours particularly so. Um, just with the, I mean, each story beat. I'm just like, man, that's a lot. That's like enough for a whole lifetime. <laughs> um <laughs> And there's been a lot of uh, self-examination and struggle and like, you know, just, I mean, it's been a whole journey. And I'm curious, what, given your story and and all of the context, like, what are you celebrating right now and excited about looking ahead uh, and the next kind of part of of where you are? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Surprisingly, the things that, is going for me right now is that I've been back uh, teaching. I teach at a local public high school, and I have a lot of disdain for the operations of, of public schools um, as institutions. Uh, no oh, are you saying that the there. system of public school needs to be reformed and is kind of broken? Go figure. Huh, Much less being an art teacher. That's a whole <laughs> other episode. Yeah. Public art education obviously something I care a lot about for all of these reasons, right? Um, making art has always been that kind of therapy, that kind of release um, and form of processing. And so the most that I can do for folks is just to be there in the classroom. Um, and then, you know, talk about representation in some of the like weird racial dynamics of Portland and the whiteness of the neighborhood that I'm in and the school. Um, you all know who uh, Gong Yu, the K-drama actor? Maybe. He I, don't know. I might know his face. Trained to Busan. He was in Goblin. He was in Coffee Prince. Um, I used him. Oh, here it is. I used him as um, a model for one of our portrait painting projects. Oh, cool. And I, for me, it was just like the most radical thing I could think to do was like, a queer Asian male art teacher in teaching like how to paint portraits. I was just like, I'm going to use this guy. Why the fuck not? Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, when have I ever seen a teacher use a model like that? Like with that wasn't like gross and tokenizing. I was like, no, I get to do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And y'all choose your best like choice for models. And it's like, and I was really surprised that kind of the lack of representation chosen and trying to, you know, most of my motivation as an art teacher, too, is to draw attention and shine light on representation in art for my students very explicitly. I feel like now there's no reason why we can't have these open conversations with 14, 15, 16-year-olds. It's just like the history of art is very old, white, European dudes, and the artists we're going to look at are Middle Eastern and... Asian American. Not those dudes. Yeah. And have made art since, you know, 1990. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the being an art teacher 
given your complexity and your journey, the place that you are and like the role, I mean, just maybe philosophically, the role of an art teacher is the idea of self-expression, is the idea of helping a young mind find their voice uh, and be able to tell their story and do that in a way that celebrates themselves, not at the... Um, whatever the negative portrayal or tokenization or whatever of another person, but like just to be able to do that. Right. So, uh, I love that. And I, I'm so glad that you came on our show. So glad that you, uh, are in the art world where you are in your current moment in space and time, um, affecting, affecting the world and affecting the community that you live in. So thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your story with us and sharing your story and your journey with your students and with other people, other life forms that you engage with. Um, it's been, been really fantastic. We are going to take a break and when we come back, we're going to try a a coffee? Is that is that a, right? A coffee and a, a snack. A coffee, coffee and snack. a snack. So snack. here is that break right now. Welcome back to the John Chi Show. We are moving into our food portion. Um, food slash drink, since we're going to have a little drink along with it, because we might need it, because this one says spicy on it. So... Um, I don't know. It it could be not really that spicy, but do you find it, KJ? Uh, is it, oh, it does say hot spicy flavor? Yeah, so it does oh. say hot because yeah. so they had different flavors that were non spicy, and I've had those, and it just essentially tastes like seaweed and rice, um, mm-hmm. which is fine. Mm-hmm. But I wanted something with a little flavor to it, um, so I got this one because you know you guys seem to handle spice okay, so. Um, and it's everyone knows Patrick Patrick okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Everyone knows that instant coffee with non dairy powdered creamer and tons of sugar is the perfect <laughs> remedy for hot and spice. That's yeah. what I just mixed in a hot, a hot drink to go to wash down that hot and spicy sack. <laughs> Makes my total sense to me. My coffee's been sitting here. I, I wasn't planning on doing these two together at the same time, but it worked out. So, um, and this is made by Babigo, which, uh, you know, is. <laughs> What'd you say? So, Made by Bibigo. who? Bibigo. Oh. What? Is it pronounced like differently? <laughs> we'll we'll figure, we'll edit that in post. No, no it's not. It's <laughs> it just uh, the way you hit it. Not to like shame you for your language. It no, just really caught it. me. It really caught me off guard because it was like deeply, deeply American. <laughs> so it was very I American am, reading. I am reading things with that American. Uh, we did a that. It was like that. No, not even not the even like episode. American. It was like deeply Oklahoman. Oh, okay. you know what I mean? Oh. Yeah, Babigo, Babigo, <laughs> it's Babigo, Babigo from the Italy. <laughs> I come on the show, and then this is what happens. It devolves into madness. Yes. So I apologize. <laughs> is this just me or? Wow, I just tried some of that spicy stuff and it changed my voice completely. <laughs> <clears throat> Is it just me though, or like when you all try to imitate a Korean accent, does it just sound horribly? For me, I think KJ is great at it. Well, he's had a lot of more practice with the language. I just than us, watch a I lot think. of K dramas <laughs> and then try to do what they do on the show. But that's also true of like, you know, British accents. I watch British TV and I'm like, can I speak like that? No. 
But I thought you were gonna. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't keep me from trying. You know, I'm like, oh no, I'm a bake. Oh, I can't even do it. I listen to too go. much Australian stuff to do. <laughs> yeah, now it's like my accents. My accents are the worst, and so I just I'm not gonna try. Yeah, ever. we haven't done accents on the show yeah, in a I long know. time. Not in a while. Because <laughs> I don't know of a good a way to do accents <laughs> that are not problematic, not super <laughs> offensive. Yeah, exactly. Um, I feel like I'm the same way. I feel like just trying to even under read the language is. A monumental task just trying to learn hangul for myself and then to like sound those letters out i want to work on because i know it's a lot of mouth sound like the way your mouth forms <laughs> well, so really I, languages I, honestly, in your mouth are you saying that you speak language. with your mouth yo interesting there's not that like forces i uh, almost forces the accent out i think sometimes for me when i'm when i'm trying to practice so it does feel weird it feels unnatural even though I feel like it should feel natural. Unfortunately, it does not. <laughs> right. Well, and like, a la Kim's Convenience. You know, there was like people... That episode with Janet? ...feelings about that. Yeah. Well, and even just the actors, like being oh. English speakers, but then imitating the Korean accent on top of that. Yeah, I feel like I had heard some talk about that a little bit. Um, there's like a lot of problems not enough for me to really be able to intelligently speak on it but a lot of problems um, behind the scenes with kim's convenience as much as i love the show i think in its creation it was an issue all right so now simu lu is exploding yeah yeah he is exploding just just exploding simu everywhere (laughs) um okay so we're jumping in with bb goes seaweed crisps yeah kim's spicy the hot spicy flavor there are other flavors but this was the one that i got Hot spicy. Uh, That's amazing. I'm curious. It too. says authentic, modern, authentic Korean. Is this what? a thing? Where? I mean, is this other than, you know, being, you know, here that, you know, I bought it here. Is this a thing that they actually made in Korea is what I'm asking. I, I mean, BBGO is usually a, a good brand for that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, because there's a little picture on the back of it where it shows like a, uh, an illustration of these little things being made in like an authentic looking looking oven. Um, and I'm wondering if that's a thing where they just put, you know, seaweed on top of rice, flattened it down and then baked it so that it was crispy. What I mean, are you looking at? Well, it looks like they pull it directly from the ocean on their boat and then it goes right Whoop. into the oven on the right. boat. I Wait, think yeah, hold, on. hold up your package again. <laughs> There's a little story on the back. And again, I- not... It would take me Uh-oh. probably 40 minutes to translate the Hangul. So oh, interesting. I only have one picture. None on yours. Huh. Man. Hilarious. Weird. Well, now I feel left out of the cool cool people's group. Hey, try <laughs> oh, one. I'm you're yeah, you're the one so who needs have, the pictures. <laughs> yeah. So As we all know, like I... An actual layer of rice cracker? Yeah. So on the yeah. bottom of the seaweed, there's a little layer of rice. That's the difference, I think. That's why they, these are crisps. Uh, yeah. I think what you got is... Daniel, yeah. Hold up. Hold up yours. Yeah, I just I like got the, the kind of packaged nori, just the seaweed nori. Yeah, but yeah, this one yeah, yeah, yeah. Is advertised with like a lot of hot and spice situation, and when I opened oh. it, like the oil is like dripping out. Oh, oh wow, nice. it's oily. Interesting. So I will say I like this yeah. package because it has a top tear and then yeah. a mid tear. I think Ooh. we've talked about this before, uh-huh. but with like big bags of chips, yep. like I'll cut the bag yep. when it gets a certain point, so I don't get the dust. Mm-hmm. Chip yeah. dust all over my hand. Or seaweed That's oils. Clever. Or the seaweed oils. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm in my fourth chip already, and I have to say these are great. 
I have to say that the coffee that we haven't spoke of yet uh, tastes like hot chocolate. It does not taste like coffee. Oh, mine's not um, hot. I can smell the spice. My coffee is cold because I made it a long time ago, so it actually works well with this. Did you start it cold or start it hot? Yeah. Okay, so I don't know what your package says, but the Hungul says mocha cold. So, oh, this is a mocha one? Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so it mm-hmm. says mocha. Well, maybe if you pulled out your flashcards, you could have read it. and be like, Oh, oh my gosh, I don't have three hours all to Conglish. translate. <laughs> well, you should have booked three hours, man. This is the work uh, of a content creator. I didn't I was going to have to work so far away. Uh, it says mocha cold mild mm. and then copy mixer. So it's yeah, I read cold, the... cold mocha, whatever the heck mild is. I don't know what a mild mocha flavor is. Have you guys had any mix. like other uh, Korean coffees before? I've had like instant coffee, but not from Korea. I feel like they're all instant coffees, number one. I don't know if that's just a thing, but I, the only times I've ever had coffee from Korea has been instant. Like, I will uh, yeah. bring my drip coffee maker <laughs> to Korea. Bring my <laughs> burr grinder to Korea. And I'll add nothing to it because <laughs> it is canon that I only like black coffee. That's, yeah. a, that's a familial thing. Sorry. So actually the one that uh, Daniel has is black coffee. It's just the original flavor without the... the oh, it's not it's, black. It's, it's, oh, it's, there's some sugar in they, it too? There's, there's a sugar ton in of sugar them. in it. Oh, yeah, wow. There's a ton of sugar and non-dairy creamer. The difference was they were all on the display. And yes, it's all instant coffee. And yeah. the difference, the Maxim, there's like four different Maxim brands. And I looked closely and it's like one is like 10% coffee, 12% coffee. And then I think the Maxim 100 Arabica, whatever one that I got was like 16%. Oh, wow. Just jumps this up one, like 70%. <laughs> I, th- I guess this one then is 13%. See, Which is well, good because it's late in Eastern Central times for yeah. one of the recording. So <laughs> well, I was reading that um, all of them have like sugar in it. And like, so yeah. it says on the top, like easy cut or, or however to open it. And then I was reading in a, in a comment on one of the product pages. Uh, somebody was like, all you people complaining about there being too much sugar n- need to know that you can. It's sugar control, and you can hold it by the other end and let out as much sugar as you want. <laughs> and what? I was like, oh, this per-, and I, they're like, if you just read the package, you'd know that. And I was like, <laughs> all right, well, I can't read. There's no other English besides Easy Cut. So it's going to take me a minute. And two, I tried to do that, the sugar control. It all fell out. No. I don't know exactly <laughs> it's how. It's all mixed yeah, in. I don't know how, yeah. <laughs> how you're supposed to control it, but it does say sugar control on multiple different sites I saw when it talks about the instant coffee. So. Hmm. I don't know well, what I was doing wrong, but I did not do it right. I didn't read anything, and I just yeah. dumped it all in. I dumped it all <laughs> into, and I've had it before, so I knew what to expect. Um, I like it, though, because I don't have to add any sugar or, or cream or anything because it's already built into it, but um, I wouldn't say it's very strong. And now, after you saying that the percentage of, of coffee in it, that totally makes sense right. because I actually do like strong coffee. So I make my these little packets with, like, almost like espresso amount of water. Like I, I literally put a quarter of a bottle uh, of a, of a thing of water. So now it's like a, it's like a shot of coffee because I want it to be stronger than, than a full cup. Cause when I made them, they just, they were too weak for me. So. Well, it says that if you, you think it's too weak, you just add another package. I, I've done that too. <laughs> <laughs> that's just that much more sugar. Oh, then yeah. that's more sugar. Yeah. Well, the sugar so, control, of course you got to do the sugar. control. <laughs> 
this uh this could totally be made up but i'm pretty sure that the prevalence of instant coffee is because of the korean war um mm. because like i'm sure it's american gis who are like where's my coffee and then korea obviously being nowhere near the coffee region of the world coffee belt um they'd be like what is coffee and like we mm. just drink uh soju and tea and yeah other corn barley teas or whatever mm. um <clears throat> So yeah, so I think that's why instant coffee is such a thing. Um, but that could also be super wrong and just totally made up from a brain hole. So somebody fact would, check me, but then don't tell it. me about it. Yeah, I would believe it because I feel yeah, like it makes sense. The reason I feel like I do see a lot of Korean people talk a lot about instant coffee because it is just that I feel like everyone's on the go all the time, and that's the whole point of it. And I'm like, that's true. They I do like also have up. a pretty toxic work culture. <laughs> Well, I wasn't saying that, but I'll I'll, I'll let you. Whatever you're Korean, that. man, you can talk about it. That's fine. True, true, true. Yeah, but then no, there's I like also my... like there's also this like aspiration for the West, and you know now we're we have like mm. Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus. So I think there's more of that motivation for real coffee, especially as a Portlandian myself. We we know our coffee smells. So. Mm. So this is probably the worst yeah. coffee you've ever had. <laughs> I was too happy to get off of the high throne, the ivory tower of... <laughs> of coffee snobbery? <laughs> coffee snobbery. Yeah. Well, it, the instant crowd. Yeah, I was going into it knowing that it probably wouldn't be high up on our ratings, but um, at the same time, it's something that I wanted to try. And so I bought it a while ago and... It's, it comes in a really big box, and so that's why I've been going through them frequently and have already had it. It's funny uh, that you say that, Daniel, because I am a coffee snob in the opposite direction to where I really mm-hmm. only like a black drip coffee. And for a long time, I was like, I hated iced coffee. Don't bring it near me. Don't even offer it to me. Uh, as well as putting in like cream or sugar in, in there. I'm like, now it's not even coffee. It's just another drink. And so exactly. it took me a minute to get off it's of that. Just high horse. Um, I still am very preferential to just black coffee, but um, yeah, that just made me think of that. Uh, but, wow. but then, you know, do you get into the snobbery of like Colombian versus Ethiopian versus, you know, how to roast it and French press? And- oh, no, no, no. I almost did. I bought a French press once and was kind of starting to get into it. And then I was like, this is too much work for me. Um, let me just, let me put that filter in, just throw some grounds and we're good to go. That's just, that's just, Oh dude, are you serious? Are you serious right now? Wow. I'm I'm about to go make it in you. I got a grinder for my beans. All right. Uh, well, let's rate it up. I just to get this out of the way. Um, Patrick, I think we will know, but what do you, will you rate it? The coffee or the chips? The The coffee. coffee. The coffee, I'll, do coffee first. I'll give. I'll do both three. at the same time. I'll give three a, a three coffee. to the coffee. I think it tastes pretty good. Honestly, I don't hate it. Um, wouldn't be my first choice. Um, I would actually like to try the regular coffee flavor. I think that would make a difference in my rating. Uh, I do like the seaweed crisps. I'm going to give them a three and a half, three point seven five. <laughs> I think that maybe it's because I snacked on something on the way on my drive home in anger. But I think that (laughs) what I had snacked on, I think, is affecting some of the flavoring of the seaweed. But I do like it. I think it tastes good. And I I will snack on these the rest of the night. And tear it in the middle once you get down to that level. All right. Daniel, how about you? 
on my end, I'm I'm having a great time with this, like bizarre chili oil. <laughs> and as far as the coffee goes, I mean, I think you know it's the difference with it's it's a comfort food kind of thing. It's, I get it's that. something you would turn to at the right when you when you need it, mm-hmm. and not maybe as an everyday thing. Convenience, exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's a great so, point. I would turn to this coffee when I didn't have any coffee left. Yeah. And but I needed it and I wasn't able to go to the store. Mm. Going to the instant coffee. Okay. So wait, what did you get? How many Kims do you give One your seaweed? To five. Yeah, out of five. What's the what's the unit? Kims? Any, any unit you want to make. <laughs> Seaweeds. <laughs> and any coffee beans portion between uh any of those numbers up to five. <laughs> I give my instant coffee. A 2.7. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And then what about the seaweed snack? Um, I just had the the Korean barbecue seaweed snack. And those are dangerous. Dangerous, Were they like savory flavored? Give those like a three. Yeah. They have like a, yeah. They have a picture of like grilled bulgogi. And they definitely have this like like salty, spicy kind of marinade vibe to them. I have a love-hate with anything that says Korean barbecue flavor on it. <laughs> I, ha- I haven't found anything Preach. that I really, that doesn't fit my, you know, expectation of what Korean barbecue is actually like. You're furious that it's not exactly Korean barbecue. It doesn't barbecue. taste like meat. <laughs> it's not the perfect <laughs> exactly. <smoke>. Exactly. <laughs> That's really funny. You mean you're, you haven't had the Korean barbecue Pringles yet? Uh, so I think I have them. actually. That I'm sounds too good. Oh, no, there's another, there's another. That's a real thing. That sounds disgusting. It's not Pringles. I think it's um, Ruffles. But there is a Korean barbecue flavored. Not interested. Chip, and it's just zero percent. All right. I'm, in, um, I'm interested. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to give the coffee a four out of five. I don't. I would never like Yay. choose it, but I think it does exactly what it needs to do. Um, and it's like a well balanced instant coffee drink. Um, and like, if I had thrown in some ice there, like I wouldn't, I don't think I would have known that it was an instant coffee. I would have been like, yeah, it tastes like a whatever mo- cold mocha f- cap of frappuccino thingy with ice. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't make me spit. On I did my not equipment. mean to make you spit tape, but that would have been awesome. <laughs> um, and then for the seaweed thing, the Kim snack, I would give this a five out of five. I think it's delicious and wonderful the hot and spicy flavor much like the shrimp chips from way early on in the show it's not that hot or spicy so it like just gives it an extra dimension of flavor um i like just like the the plain seaweed crisps like i like having that on the side with a bowl of rice um so like the fact that it does it for me is perfect and uh mm. yeah so easy five out of five this is a great snack would recommend Rare plus the tear off the tear off mm-hmm. at the at the middle section, they just get me, you know. <laughs> That's a clutch. That's a clutch uh, nice. addition to the product. Yeah, Bibigo, way to go, y'all. They, they know Bibigo, way to go. Bibigo, way to go. Bibigo. All right, Nathan, bring us home. So yeah, I'll, I'll start with the coffee. I give it a three out of five. I like the convenience of it, but I wish it was stronger. Uh, and yes, I could add two, but I I didn't actually know about that sugar uh, um, trick. I think it's so. a lie. 
Yeah, I'll try. Uh, I think it's it a up. lie. No, I think it's a lie to make you try to like keep buying it and like try to like be good at it, but like it's actually <laughs> impossible. And that's how that's their marketing scheme to make. Oh, you that keep guy is it. just the same person on every yeah, yeah, different. Yeah. <laughs> he's just right leaving that same review. <laughs> yeah, you fools! You're not doing the sugar control. I will try it because but there's it special does seem labeling to... on the shipping packages that says like always keep this end up and we'll always keep the coffee crystals at the very top of the sleeve. Huh. That's it's true. I, I, I need to, I mean, I need to see the shipping yeah. on those boxes. No way. I need to see the instructions. But if they're bigger, out. heavier crystals, so maybe if you shake it around a little bit, it'll come to the top. I don't know. I'll give hey, you some like, reviews. But the on science, that. the science the of science. it, the density. I don't know. I'll try. Um, but yeah, I, I like it. But it, I, I need it to be stronger because I need my caffeine because I got three kids. Um, the seaweed crisps. I'm gonna give a five out of five too because it's got the right amount of crispy, crunchy. Um, the good balance of the seaweed and the rice and then the, the spiciness. I think that's, uh, it's not too much of anything. So I, I like the balance of it. And uh, yeah, um, I don't know. I will try to save some for Allison. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Daniel, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people connect with you if you're open to that um, and they're open to that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, thank you so much for creating this platform and keeping things going and, uh, and yeah, having the space to share my existential navel gazing. <laughs> That's the subtitle of the show, the John Chi Show, That's Existential Navel Gazing. <laughs> here for it. Um, and I guess, yeah, my, my Instagram is um, at new.danielgyu, G Y U. Um, and I'm, I'm not the most terribly active. Instagram as far as being a professional artist goes, but I'm trying to be better at that. So follow me there. Um, that's that's about it for me. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Yeah, if you're in Portland, go buy some of his cups. Those look really cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go buy his cups. ceramics. Go buy some ceramic. <laughs> Amazing. Well, you can find just us at the John G Show. Oh, oh, just don't. No, you do. Um, uh, don't search too deeply or else you'll find a video of me in drag as Demi Moore battling with another drag queen as Demi Moore on a pod video. Um, Amazing. A special thing. Go I, search extra I won't be deeply. searching for searching that right now, now then. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, we'll all see you on the comments of that video. Uh, <laughs> um, but you can find us at John G Show on all of our social platforms. Send us an email, John G Show, just like media.com. Support the show, John G Show.com slash support. Uh, I'm at KJ Rilke. Patrick is at Patrick in the World. Nathan is at N. Nowak. Thank you, everyone. We will see you next week. Until then, John Chi, hey-o! Bye. 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 Bye.